0: Hey hey Welcome to Woman's Zone, connecting women
1: through their stories. Hey yo, hey yo. When C.J. Langenhoven, author of Distem and Afrikaans literary icon died suddenly in 1932, his literary legacy was left to a fiery Jewess, Sarah Goldblatt. This disturbed the Afrikaans' community, and yet this young woman devoted her life to the preservation and promotion of his works. But who was she? Dominique Malhova is her grandniece, an author and a lawyer and she set out to find out who this woman was and perhaps lay some ghosts at the same time. In Searching for Sarah, we meet a woman out of her time, largely unrecognised for her valuable work, one who almost slipped into the shadows. I'm Beryl Eichenberger, and I asked Dominique how it all began.
0: I was working with women's stories, I think, you know, and, and with identity. So I was actually doing some research on a memoir that I was writing at the time, sort of 2017, and I was looking for information of my great-grandfather, so Sarah's father, David. Okay. and so I. He was a very I, interesting uh, character. He was also a quite an interesting character, and in fact it's quite sad that we don't really know too much about him. And um, I think that there might well be quite a lot of information in the New York libraries because that's where he ended up and spent quite a lot of time there, and was and, and quite instrumental in in work that he did there. So I find this whole um, intrigue with families interesting that we don't really think about the lives that they led until it's too late, until we don't ask the question. So I was looking at um, where I came from because I'm I also have a a fairly mixed identity. I'm born of a Jewish mother with a German father. Um, I'm married to a non-Jew, so my issues of identity are also not straightforward. Um, so when I was writing my previous memoir and the focus really there being on women and, and work, I also looked at the issue of identity and sort of try to understand where I come from and why I feel the way I do about things in life, you know, just in general. Let's come back so, to that
1: a little later because I really related to that and I felt that it was a story about identity. But I want to find out your process. Your your first port of call was canamea's biography of Langenhoven, who mm-hmm. admittedly had to mention Sarah, but there was a certain amount of reluctance there. So let's talk about the journey of finding Sarah, because at the end, you did to a very large extent. Let's talk about Canamea and
0: what you found there. Well, Beryl, that was quite a... A tricky thing um, because I knew there were two sources. There were, you know, effectively they're the written sources and then there are the very few people who were alive that could really tell me anything of, of substance. Mm-hmm. And I knew that the Langenhoven uh, grandson, Gillian Brummer, was still alive. Um, I hadn't met any of the family. My aunt had had a very close relationship with him, but she, she died in 2016. So I knew, knew that there were two. In, in fact, it was it became more obvious to me once I met them that Kaname was the source that I needed to go to for Sarah. I, In fact, I'm trying to think of the sequence of what happened, but I knew that there was a biography about him so because I'd sort of gone on and looked and seen what there was on Langenhofen's life. So I knew that there was this hefty biography of his life, but I was also assured that that the story of Sarah could only be found in Kaname. So that was the sort of premise upon which I went about this research and I thought, well, that, that can't be true. You know, there has to be another version of her. So, But, of course, I had to first get to grips with Kanamea, which was quite, (laughs) it was quite a process on its own because, first of all, it's written in uppercance. It's a a very hefty biography with an incredible amount of footnotes and starts, and the first four chapters deal directly with Sarah. They start off with Sarah, and they're quite interesting sort of prefaces to the book and, and forwards to the book about Writing the biography of Langenhoven, you know, the Cunnermea being warned at the time that he wrote, and they said, be careful, be careful what you write, because you're going to open up a can of worms here, which was quite an interesting, you know, there were there were sort of subtleties and nuances in when Cunamea wrote his biography of Langenerwin in 1995. If you look at the at the start of his book, and in fact, even at the end, you know, he says that he wonders sometimes whether Sarah is not kind of looking at him. From beyond and and sort of with you know with you know just sort of squirming or whatever you know the 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 expression is so um
1: because langenhoven wasn't perfect he was a literary icon and i mean the relationship between sarah and langenhoven is absolutely fascinating and i i think that that for me was the crux of the story how that relationship endured and Maybe we should start at the beginning, a little bit of Sarah's background and her relationship with her father, because you were researching about her father. And then my sense very much was that Langenhoven was a father figure. You know, one so often models the people that we love tend to be very like your fathers.
0: And do you Mm -hmm. think that was the case? That's an interesting question, Beryl. And I think that when you know, when I started looking at it, I thought that this is exactly it. It is a father figure. It was a father figure to her. So I could never really get to grips with the relationship that Sarah had with her father, with her own father, David. Mm-hmm. Other than to say that he was integral in her upbringing. She worked very close with him, uh, closely with him. Um, and then for whatever reason and of course no one can understand or no one really knows the reason from the family and i've, I've begged and pleaded with them to tell me more and they can't no one can yeah. tell me but there was some estrangement somehow that happened so from being very close to her father and working with him in the printing business which he started and developing a love for for the yiddish language she then was left to her own devices when he upped and left for new york for whatever reason it was and then, it, it struck me that, you know, if you look at the sort of the time frame and the letters of reference from the various places, she was working at Garlic's for a short time. I think she was looking for employment. And she was working at Garlic's for a short time. And she she gave them a notice, I think, within a week and, and, and said she's she's leaving and she's going to Oatswain. Now, if one considers the time frame that we're talking about, this is 1912. Um, she's a young girl. She's 20 years old. You know, you can imagine even traveling at that stage, why would she suddenly leave Cape Town with the confines of her family? She had three siblings at that stage still. She would up and leave and go to Otsuun and go and work in a, in a small little local newspaper with, with this man, Langenhoven. It seems strange that she would do that. And so what I, I think I kind of assessed the situation, and that was through her, the work that her father did in trying to establish the recognition of Yiddish as a language in South Africa, which he was instrumental in together with uh, um, Morris and whatever. I gather that she must have met Langenhoven at some stage prior to just arriving in Otsuun and, and pitching up at his door. So
1: maybe because he was uh, the proponent of Afrikaans as being accepted as a very important language in South Africa, do you think that there was some sort of relationship between her father's work with Yiddish? And Langenhoven's work with Afrikaans, and that she related to
0: him and his passion. And yes. found that, that became her passion i think I think you spot on Beryl. I think that's exactly what happened. I think she developed her passions were with language. She, mm-hmm. she'd been she'd been working with her father with the development of a language and the recognition of a language, and she was interested in you know those that was her background. And so I think that yes, I think in Langenhoven she found a continuation of this quest and this passion. Foster a language that you know was was then a part of her upbringing. But you know, when, when you know language at the time in South Africa,
1: I think what's interesting you you said the word foster, and Afrikaans is a foster child to Dutch, and Yiddish a foster child to so many Europe Eastern European languages. European languages, I should say. So she went to Othurn, this dorky at that particular stage. And she meets Langenhoven and basically the two of them, she's his assistant. But that relationship started to develop. And I, I think one of the things that I loved was their nicknames for each other, which
0: endured. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, well, I think, you know, if you look at the some of his writings, and I mean, for me, there's like an, a whole wealth of information here that I still want to look at. I mean, I've got his volumes sitting here that I, I haven't even started going through. His actual manuscript published, I mean, there are 16 volumes, yeah, 16 volumes of them. And there he talks a little bit about the relationship that they had working together they, It was just the two of them that's what he says quite specifically mm. it was just the two of them working in this in this little office she was his his sub his, his, you know she was the sub editor and clearly he was the chief so that was an, a name but but interestingly you know when and, and of course not only her relationship with with but the relationship between her and Langenherven's wife to me was an interesting one because she, in fact, even uses the same name. If you look at the letters that she wrote to Sarah during that time, which were also numerous, she talks about, she, she addresses it as our sub. She talks about Sarah as being our sub. In other words, the work that, that Langenhoven did was connected to all three of them. It wasn't mm-hmm. as if there was this outside mischievous woman who was trying to break apart the marriage. That just certainly was not the impression that I got at all.
1: And that um, certainly doesn't. So it was come almost as if
0: she, in your book, yeah. it,
1: it's almost uh, dare I say it a ménage à trois, but a very well, warm ménage à trois. Her relationship with Froki went on long after Langenhoven's death, and I, I liked the phrase in your book that said she was an intimate guest of their family. Yes, yes. well, so
0: actually, short, if you look at the volumes. Tr- <laughs> Exactly, it was, you know, it, I think that's exactly what it was. And of course, you know it it begs the question, well, why did Sarah become so involved in their family and sort of have this mother figure in Froki, the wife? You know, they all seem to be very supportive and and as we say, sort of intimately connected with each other in in various relationships. So one it begs the question what what was the the relationship like with Sarah's own mother? And what 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 that was, which was also, you know, there are lots of uh, questions there that that need to be asked. She wasn't quite as enamoured with with the language. I don't, I mean, I can imagine she probably didn't understand a word of it. Mm-hmm. Um, her own mother, so you know, Sarah was very much connected to the Langenhuber family. And, and as you say, and one one is sceptical and wary of using the word menage a trois, but I think it's exactly what seemed to have happened, of course. But yeah. All speculative, but... Mm.
1: The family members, I mean, you were able to meet her, god her, uh, to talk to her godson and his wife, who had very strong memories of Sarah. And, and to me, I think this, again, comes back to the point of identity. Sarah almost relinquished her Jewish identity. That's how I saw it, and became an Afrikaner. But she was always on the outside. In fact, there was a, a, a quote, I think, from Panamea's book, which, if I have time, we'll, we'll talk about. But at the same time, I think uh, she she was the outsider who had probably the most information about Langenhoven, his most intimate details of what he was thinking and what he was planning to write and, and everything else. But I was very interested in how, in many ways, the, the Langenhoven family were. Helpful, and yet there was some resistance.
0: Can you expand on that? Well, that's quite a, quite a sensitive area, actually, Beryl, because and there are a lot of layers to this. Mm-hmm. I, I was very aware. I was I, the, the create the, the impression that I received right up front from the very first meeting at which I knew nothing about anybody, really, um, and I came with an open. You know I, I sort of came with it. I didn't even come with a pen and paper, I came as a as a sort of an extended family member because I knew that my aunt Naomi had a very close relationship with Gilam. So it was on that basis that I sort of arrived and I explained. I said Omi was my aunt, and she was I was very close to her growing up because of various reasons, but I, I had a very close relationship with, with Omi and I knew that there was some a long-standing relationship with gilam So I came on with that link in mind and, and sort of assumed that that link had sort of endured from Sarah through to, to my aunt Naomi. I perhaps, and and perhaps I was under illusions about that because there was a lot of, I think that they viewed Sarah as a complicated and a complex person in their own family because of the way she was, number one, she was not you know, Sarah was. We call we laugh in our family. We call them the gold black girls. We, we they're a strong bunch of women in our family. You know, they're, they're quite intimidating. You know, people have said that of my own mother. My own friends used to say that of my own mother. Um, um I found, yeah, true. I mean, I am. Um, they're kind of tough, fierce women. Uh, you know, even my aunt who is now my uh, the older uh, the, the the other sister who is still alive in in in, in Israel. I. We were always kind of wary of her. They're a strong, feisty women. They don't—they don't sort of stand back for anybody. Sarah was one of those. So that comes across she, very strongly. Yeah. So she she assumed <laughs> she, of course, then has this very close relationship with Langenhoven, and Langenhoven's own daughter Angela mm-hmm. had problems of her own, and Sarah stepped in to help with Angela. I mean, that was quite clear. Froki would often ask Sarah's um, help and, and, and support and advice on on issues with Langenhurban when he was drinking, but also on her on her daughter who suffered, you know, she'd suffered the trauma of a stillbirth and she was a little bit of a depressive and an alcoholic mm-hmm. and uh, oh. that I knew from my aunt. She had told me about that. So f- for the rest, for the family, one can imagine that Sarah was, Sarah was first of all, the, the mistress of, of the grandfather, but also this kind of stand in mother So there were many layers of perhaps resentment towards her, you know, from from just a relationship point of view. And then, of course, in her absolute obsession with trying to keep langenhoven at the forefront of everything that she did. Langenhoven was not as fascinating a character as as he was for Sarah, because the Brummers had, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd moved on in times. They were not the Nationalist Party supporters um, they were more liberal-minded. They'd gone overseas and they'd studied. So they came back with very different political affiliations. And perhaps Sarah was a complete thorn in the side for them because she was still completely, you know, she she seemed to be a nationalist, a staunch nationalist supporter, possibly linked to the language that she had. And she'd sort of lost, as you say, she'd lost her identity as, as a Jew, really. So it was quite a complicated relationship with her all around. And I certainly got that impression right at the beginning. So I had to be wary of... Uh, what it was that they felt about her. And, and it seemed like they were, as they said, that she was complicated for them. Mm-hmm. Th- there's no doubt about that.
1: Yeah. But the information that you had gathered, I mean, you, you had to go through a number of archives in uh, uh, Stenenbosch, and there was some reluctance. I found that you know the the librarians were quite reluctant to open up the information. What do you think? Was the reason that they didn't want to tarnish Langenhoven's memory or just that it was an uncomfortable
0: person because she was an outsider? I think it's probably a little bit of both. Langenhoven was always this icon, this absolute icon for the Afrikaner, despite all the, you know, the sort of demons that he suffered himself. But he was a fascinating character, a truly fascinating character. And I suppose that there is that reluctance to dredge up things that may ruin his reputation, number one. And also I think the fact that I questioned, you know, I went straight in to the to, to the rumour that had always been circling in my head, well, you know, did you hear anything about the love child? Well, of course, that was a scandal. You know, no one had mentioned the, the, the fact that there may have been a love child son. at that point. Yeah, the, the son. So that was a, that was a real no-no for them to, to even speculate on. And I just got the feeling that it was not something that, that we really talk about. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I'm completely the opposite, you know, and I think our, our stage of development with, um, you know, women's voices and everything has, has reached, has gone beyond that, has gone beyond that. I think secrets are coming out. I think people's stories are being told. They're important to be told. Mm.
1: And I, I think, I think so.
0: what what you've done for Sarah,
1: you, you have placed her on a platform that works with Langenhoven and, and that she she's no longer in the shadows. I think that's the important thing. You have given her uh, a voice. I, I think one yes. of the questions uh, I, I mean there there is so much in the book, and I want people to read it, obviously. Um, and of course, the sun. Is the big mystery, and we won't go any further into that. But I think there's a subject there for another book. But I was really interested in what surprised you most about what you discovered. I mean, you did something like three years of research. Were there specific things that you went, oh my goodness, you know, this is insane, this is ridiculous? How did this happen? Or that just shaped the Sarah that
0: you have actually portrayed in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I must say it was, it was a lengthy period. It obviously was not um, constant, but but she mm-hmm. circled in my mind all the time while I was doing other things, of course, you know, I, in fact, I released my second memoir in 2018. And so that took up quite a lot of my energy and time as well. So Sarah was still circulating in my mind at the time, but I think the thing that was fascinating for me was the extent of the work that she undertook in yeah. all her various capacities number one you know I I still feel that I haven't even touched on on some of the work that she did because I didn't you know I never went into any of her sort of professional uh, communications with parliamentary figures and things um, you know the whole sort of business side of her of, of her life. You know, I really was focused on 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 her and long so, and her. So she was such a talented yeah, teacher as well. She was, and actually, it's been lovely. That's been such a lovely part of this book. You know, is I've had wonderful. I've been contacted by so many people who have said. She taught me Afrikaans. I remember her so well. She was an interesting woman and a passionate mm-hmm. woman. In fact, the nice one of the most beautiful, heartwarming emails I got was from one of the professors that she, that um, I quote quite extensively. I had to go back and see where it was from her professor's son, mm-hmm. and he said to me, "The professor that you're describing in your book is my father." And it oh, was such God. a lovely, heartwarming email. And he said mm-hmm. he'd bought three copies of the book and he was going to give one to his his mother. His father obviously wasn't alive. It was the professor in which she was editing. He was a psychologist, I think, and, and Sarah had been editing his work. And she always did, you know, she did translations for parliamentarians. She was involved in many, many things. But that has been the night, you know, people have sort of come out of the woodwork and said, of course, I remember Sarah. She was my teacher or I taught with her. or, And that's been really lovely to you know, to know that she had relevance in in many people's lives. Mm-hmm. So that's been a nice, heartwarming, yeah, you know, greatest part of this relevance, thing. obviously
1: was in establishing what Langenhoven wanted in terms of the Afrikaans language and his his literature. and I, and, I mean, I, I love the stories, particularly about Langenhoven's centenary celebrations. I mean, she was quite adamant about what she wanted. maybe that. Not even a strong enough word, but Uh, because he died in 1932, the Mm. Langenhoven centenary celebrations were 1974. If I remember correctly, it was 1973.
0: So
1: it was 1973, and it was yes. She spent. It was the hundred year. Yes, she had spent forty years of her life pushing Langenhoven. I mean, being Langenhoven promoter if if one can put it that way. I'm sure there's a better word for it than that. But I I there's some lovely stories about the centenary and what she wanted and how she got. Can you give us a little bit of insight into that? Because I, I really I could see this woman very, very, very clearly. Oh
0: yeah. Oh yeah. No, I think she, you know, she went all out. I mean she, as you say, adamant I don't think is the word. She was driven like to almost insane proportions Mm -hmm. about what she wanted to do I think even I think on the day that they had a procession so she orchestrated uh, all kinds of celebrations and you know schools closed for I think a day or two when she arranged a procession to follow the route in one of Langenhoeven's stories which is not even familiar to me. You know, these things were not part of my my own schooling. But, but to the Afrikaans person there, oh, gosh, Beryl, there were so many pictures that I found in the in the library. And I haven't even included a tiny bit of them, you know, in terms of what happened actually in that centenary teen- year. There were tons and tons of pictures of her, you know, giving speeches and all kinds of this, you know, plays were enacted. And the whole year was spent devoted to the celebration of Langhoven's birth in 1873. So that's really that. That was the, the, that was the full impact of of what she was sort of. That was what she was working towards, you know. And I think that after that, she sort of lost her her spirit and her spark. And of course, by then she was you know eighty four years old. So she was not a spring chicken. Extraordinary. And she was. Yeah. Yeah. The, the
1: lengths, I mean, I think what you portrayed here is such a powerful woman, and I I, I feel that there are more stories that can come out of this. I I felt very personally that I would love to see this as a novel because there is. Really, Beryl, that's interesting. Because as a historical novel, um, because there's such depths that whilst you you talk about all the research and everything else, but there are obviously, as you quite rightly said earlier on, there are layers and layers that need still possibly to be peeled back. But mm. there is there is such a powerful story here of a woman who is determined to preserve this man's life, his writings and the language that he absolutely and she has I mean almost
0: single-mindedly single-handedly I would say yeah, that, that's how yes. I felt yeah I, I think so too you know I, I think the amount of work that she did was it was extraordinary and I think one's got to look at the fact. You know that he clearly felt that she was that she was capable, and she was the right person yeah. to look after his manuscripts. You know, exactly. if one just considers that single factor that he entrusted her with the entire with with his life's work, which was substantial, which was really substantial, and there she was, this young Jewish woman. Well, at that stage, you know, 1932, she was what in her forties. You know, so but still, she, you know, he must have thought highly of of her work ethic her feeling for the language and, and and trusted that she would provide you know for his legacy going forward and in fact she controlled obviously all the the, the royalties and the, the the you know the finances that came from the publication of the works you know when you look at the letters to to engela to um to his daughter the letters kept saying thank you for the check thank you for the check yeah. Sarah was the one was, that was actually providing income from the sources of, of, of her father. So uh, I think she was entrusted with a, a pretty a powerful position, you know, just in terms of being an, an executrix in, in in an estate of that value. So that in itself, I think, you know, I've never even thought of, of it actually in that in that sense. But you know, that was and that was just part of what she did. She was not only a literary executrix, she was a woman in her own right. She was a teacher and she was. You know, we talk about revolutionary methods of teaching in Afrikaans. You know, she's got, look, in her catalog, she had books that she had written about how to teach Afrikaans. It's quite ironic, actually, because I've still got children at school. And they say to me, "Oh gosh, mom, our Afrikaans—we just we just don't get it. We don't get it." And I say, "Oh, you know, Aunt Sarah would be horrified if you if you, if you say <laughs> pull that. out one of Sarah's books. I think would be the answer." Exactly. I think so. I think so. Yeah. And language is such a, a part of your identity, and and you know, identity in South Africa is such a, a fraught subject. You know, just going back into our history, it's for me a fascinating, a whole fascinating. As you say layers they're layers i mean i've you know as i say i start off i said i'm i'm not a very good jew i don't even know who i identify with in some ways i'm almost a little bit like sarah i don't really fit into either you know i, I identify as being jewish my husband's not jewish you know so i i'm i'm also sort of between the two it's it's quite an interesting factor for me but it's opened up a whole world of I find these sorts of things just intriguing in terms of yeah. thinking about things differently, thinking about the African nation differently, yeah. and thinking about the Jews differently. Yeah. You know, the Jews are, are going through a tough time here too. So yeah. it's quite a fascinating story. I think I, there's a lot. I have to agree
1: lot. with you. I really do. And I think it's like, you know, one can be born somewhere and yet. It's not your home. You leave the place mm. and you find your home. So mm. there's something uh, almost in your soul that finds the place where you belong. And Sarah most definitely did belong in the Afrikaner society, whether they like it or not, because that mm. is what she became And it, mm. it, from what you wrote. And mm. I found that fascinating because, yes, I... Mm. Um, I also struggle with identity, but I think let's just one of the things that I really found intriguing, and this is that her her ashes were buried next to Froki and Langenhoven, and, and if that isn't sort of the um, underlining of the relationship, I don't know what is. How did you feel I'm, about uh, that when
0: you visited that the the where they were buried? Well, I think you know that's as. I, I feel like, you know, I've, I've met some of the members of the Langenwerben Gedenksfonds oh. who continued the work that she set up, obviously, when he died, the, the, a fund was set up. Um, and I, I, you know, I haven't spent long enough there to go and understand what it all is, but I, it was an intriguing part for me too, that there yeah. her ashes are, you know, close to them. Um, and I think that's the work of the Gedenksfonds the that, that that enabled that to happen. So that that's a wonderful um you know, sort of ending for her life. That's where she needed to be. Interestingly, we were talking about this yesterday because a a rabbi, a traveling rabbi has got hold of my mother and said he's just read the story. I don't know if you know, I I can't think, Silverhuff, Huff Huff or something. He's written a book about the traveling rabbi. Anyway, and he he sent, I'd never seen this, a picture of my grandfather's grave. So Sarah's brother, Israel, who is buried in a cemetery in the middle of Johannesburg with no relation to anyone anywhere you would never even know that he that he's buried there and he's now on a quest to kind of give them recognition as being part of the family because he thinks it's such an interesting family but so it's 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 actually interesting that you comment on where one is buried and and the significance of that and and whether people can discover them you know later on in life I don't know interesting extraordinary book Dominique Congratulations, because what you've done is you've brought
1: Sarah out of the shadows. Um, I know that there is quite a lot of controversy about it, but that's perhaps for another discussion. Um, and I know that you will deal with it in your own inim- inimitable way, but you've certainly given her the recognition, the recognition that she undoubtedly deserved. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions and I think you do too, but I think that might
0: be a subject for another book. Would I be right now? <laughs> oh, I don't know, Beryl. I've been asked this several times <laughs> now. I must say, and I've got so many. Yeah, I've, it's it's interesting how, how sort of determined people are to continue with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some ways, I feel I feel almost like there, there is a lot more there. But in some ways, I've got other work planned at the moment, so I'm, it's not something that I'm I'm thinking of pursuing at the moment. I've got sort of three other projects. The go, and it depends on how much Sarah carries on talking to me as to whether I feel I should carry on with her story.
1: (laughs) I suspect she's not going to close the door, and neither (laughs) are you. Thank
0: you, (laughs) Dominique. Thank you, Beryl. It's been a real absolute pleasure speaking to you about this. Hey, hey.